This is a Squeeze podcast. We're your shortcut to being informed. It's the 25th anniversary of the Port Arthur Massacre, the worst single-person mass shooting in Australia's history and a tragedy that left 35 people dead. In this episode of Squeeze Shortcuts, we'll give you the background to that dark day, the gun law reforms that followed, and where that sits today. Squeeze Shortcuts is the backstory to the big news stories. I'm Simone Zaziaris. And I'm Claire Kimball. Claire, Port Arthur is a town on the Tasman Peninsula. It's less than 100 kilometres southeast of Hobart, and it's one of the 11 places that make up the UNESCO World Heritage-listed Australian convict sites. It was a penal settlement in the 19th century. It wasn't much of a happy place back then. Convicts experienced hardship and punishment there. It also had a timber industry and a fair bit of boat building going on. When convict transportation stopped in 1853, there were fewer arrivals rivals, but Port Arthur kicked on and all these years later, it's one of Australia's most notable tourist destinations. Yeah, visitors have been going to Port Arthur for years to roam the 100-acre site with its 30-odd historic buildings and ruins. And tragically, on the 28th of April 1996, it was the site of the worst single-person mass shooting in Australia's history. It was the most violent day in Australia's modern history. 35 people, including four children, lost their lives. 23 more were injured and many more were left traumatised when lone gunman Martin Bryant went on a shooting rampage using semi-automatic weapons that he'd bought without a licence. At the time of the attacks, Bryant was 28 years old and living in Newtown, a suburb of Hobart. He had troubles right from the start, Claire. His enrolment in primary school highlighted his impaired development and that he struggled to make friends. He moved into his teens, he became a recluse and was increasingly erratic and violent. He was given an air rifle for his 14th birthday by his dad that was seen later by experts as a bit of a turning point and he was said to use it to fire at passing traffic. There were reports also of cruelty to animals. He was eventually taken out of school just before his 16th birthday. During that time, he displayed what experts later said was a personality disorder, intellectual impairment, and there were signs of autism. Fast forward to when he was 19 years old, Claire, and he formed a rather unusual friendship with a lottery heiress. That was in 1987 when he befriended 54-year-old Helen Harvey after she hired him to do some gardening and some odd jobs, and he eventually went to live in her home in an affluent part of Hobart. Five years later, she died in a car accident, and there was speculation that he'd caused that crash. He was injured in the crash and he was in hospital for seven months, but he inherited $550,000 from Harvey's estate. And less than a year later, another significant event happened in Bryant's life. His father took his own life after seeking out help for depression and anxiety. Bryant inherited his father's 250000 superannuation fund and some property. That gave him a very healthy kitty to travel overseas, which he did a lot of, Claire, between 1993 and 95. First, he flew to Melbourne and then on to Singapore. He managed to stay away just three days before returning home. But in 1994, he made it further, travelling multiple times to Europe, Asia and the US. He also travelled throughout Australia. And when he came home to Tassie, he was said to be depressed and had become fascinated by the massacre of 16 school children in the Scottish township of Dunblane in March 1996. Yeah, and just a few weeks later, Bryant packed two semi-automatic 
semi-automatic rifles, a 12-gauge shotgun and hundreds of rounds of ammunition and drove to the Seascape Cottage, a guest house by the water on the Tasman Peninsula. Bryant's father had previously tried to purchase the B&B, but owners Sally and David Martin got in first. Bryant apparently believed that the Martins had deliberately bought the property to hurt his family and it was a bugbear that he focused his rage on. Shortly after he arrived at the cottage, he murdered the Martins. He then drove a few minutes down the road to the historic Port Arthur site and just after one o'clock he was lugging a heavy bag of the guns and ammunition. He ordered a meal at the Broad Arrow Cafe. He ate it and then he began shooting those in the dining area and in the adjoining gift shop. Within two minutes, 20 people were dead. After leaving the cafe, Bryant killed four more people and wounded 11 others in the car park. While he drove for the exit, a mother approached his car in the hope of getting her two young daughters to safety and all three of them were killed. He also took the lives of four more people as he passed the site's toll booth before stealing a car and transferring his guns and ammunition. And within a few more hundred metres down the road, he shot a woman at a petrol station before taking a man hostage. It was about two o'clock at this stage and with his hostage, Bryant then returned to seascape. He shot at cars passing on his way. Uh, He took his hostage inside and held an overnight siege in that guest house. Yeah, and once police arrived, Claire, they surrounded the inn and tried unsuccessfully to negotiate with Bryant, who shot at them. He later shot his hostage and set fire to the guest house as he tried to escape the following morning. He was treated for burns in hospital. Court proceedings, though, started fairly quickly after that. He pleaded guilty to the massacre. In November 1996, he was given 35 life sentences without the possibility of parole. He's now in Hobart's Risdon Prison, where reports say he remains in solitary confinement and his immediate family are the only ones who are allowed to visit. Needless to say, this shocked the nation to its core and questions about how this could happen very quickly turned to focus on Australia's gun laws. Let's get into that now. In the wake of the massacre, gun control lobbyists were out in force, arguing for tighter and uniform legislation. And they didn't just point to the Port Arthur massacre, but other mass shootings, firearm-related homicides and suicides from the previous two decades. But there were also pro-gun lobbyists, Claire, putting up their fight. They, of course, were vehemently against reform and disliked the implication that guns themselves, rather than their misuse by a small number of people, were to blame for violence. Still, within four months of the tragedy, then Prime Minister John Howard and the coalition, which had only been elected after beating Paul Keating's Labor Party just a couple of months before, moved to tighten Australia's state and territory gun laws. Yeah, and overhauling those laws wasn't easy, but compared to the US, where the gun reform debate and mass shootings are on an exhausting and unproductive loop, Australians have no right enshrined in our constitution to own a gun. And while the Australian government has the power to make legislation around firearm importation, laws about private gun ownership are state based and in 1996 they varied greatly. There were different rules about the licensing of guns, about background checks for owners, as well as the types of guns that people could use. But because the federal government had no control over gun ownership, sale or use, it had to get the states and territories on side to enact uniform gun laws prohibiting that ownership, possession and sale of automatic and semi-automatic weapons. It was a move to ensure there would never again be another Port Arthur event in Australia, but these measures were unpopular with gun owners, a large number of whom had actually voted for the federal coalition in the election just two months before the massacre. Some commentators said the fact 
that another election was off the cards for some time allowed Howard to take a strong stance on gun laws. And what Howard himself has said is that he accepted that anger from voters who felt betrayed by the party that they'd supported. But he remains very firm in his belief that it was the right thing to do. And it wasn't just Howard who risked his government's political neck. Then Queensland Premier Rob Borbidge, who represented the National Party, says his election loss in 1998 was down to his support for the reform. But long story short, 12 days after the massacre, the National Firearms Agreement was signed by government leaders across the country. That agreement saw automatic and semi-automatic weapons banned. It also introduced other limitations like making it more difficult to get a gun licence, requiring all firearms to be registered and also banning silences. The government also brought in a federally financed gun buyback scheme and almost 700,000 guns were surrendered to authorities and destroyed. It was a big job, Claire, and one academics at the University of Sydney say has resulted in a steep decline in mass shootings and intentional firearm deaths since those reforms were introduced. So a mass shooting event in Australia is considered to be when four or more people that doesn't include the perpetrator are killed. Since Port Arthur, there have been three mass shootings. Two were when the father killed his family members. Another one was when there was a shooting spree in Darwin in 2019. By contrast, the 25 years before Port Arthur, there were 113 people who had died in 14 mass shootings. And there's also been a steep decline in gun-related homicides and suicides since those law reforms. And that's not to say Australia's gun laws are perfect. Let's get into some of those issues now. Australia has some of the strictest laws in the world when it comes to guns, but that doesn't mean it's set and forget. In fact, the number of firearms in Australia has increased. In 2017, there was an estimated 3.6 million firearms in Australia, compared with 3.2 million in 1996. Reports say that while the number of licensed firearm owners fell from 1.2 million to just 0.8 million between 1997 and 2016, each owner now has more firearms, about four guns each. Yeah, so more guns and fewer owners with more guns. But while most of the important provisions of the National Firearms Agreement remains intact, no state or territory fully complies. And according to a report commissioned by Gun Control Australia, there's been a steady reduction in restrictions. One example is the licensing age, despite the agreement stating that all applicants for a firearm licence must be at least 18 years of age. Every state and territory allows minors to possess and use firearms firearms. And there's also been a number of measures that haven't quite materialised, including a national gun registry that would keep a nationwide record of firearms and their owners. Yeah, and that's proved to be a loophole for criminals who have exploited inconsistencies in the different state and territory licensing systems. It means authorities struggle to keep track of weapons when license holders move interstate. So there's a central database that helps police track the movement of firearms across borders, but it relies on the states and territories updating their information in real time, and that doesn't happen at all times. It's an issue that has also been criticised by politicians. A fortnight ago, Claire Key Independent Senator Rex Patrick called out the Liberal and Labor governments for not fixing those gaps over the past 25 years. He called it a striking failure. He did say he hoped that a new era of federal-state cooperation as a result of COVID-19 could produce action. And former Prime Minister John Howard has also recently appealed to the states and territories not to drop the ball on gun laws. Since losing office in 2007, he's not really 
recently been one to give government's advice via the media, but he recently noted that there's been some changes and lapses over the years in those gun laws. And he hopes that, and this is a quote, the common sense of the various state governments will keep the laws as they are. And that's your shortcut to the Port Arthur massacre and Australia's gun laws. On to our recommendations. Each episode of Squeeze Shortcuts, we give a recommendation on some further reading, listening and watching. Mine is an opinion piece former Prime Minister John Howard wrote for the New York Times in 2013. It's called on US President Barack Obama to follow his model on gun laws. Yeah, that was a while ago now. They've just done a loop around and not made much progress. But mine is uh, a John Oliver piece. He's the British comedian who appears on US TV. He had a humorous but very, very sharp series into Australia. Australia's gun laws, showing Americans that it can be done. A link to both of those is in your episode notes. Thanks for tuning in to Squiz Shortcuts. If you like our shortcut, you might consider leaving a review in your podcast app. We have a couple of shortcuts in the works for the coming weeks, including what's going on with the modern day space race. Plenty happening up above us. If you have requests, send them through to hello at thesquiz.com.au. Until next time. Mm-hmm.